Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Talking Force. Today, we're gonna take a trip down memory lane with one of my great friends, colleagues, mentors, and, and, and peers, Jim McFarlane. For those of you who don't know this name, uh, you actually probably do. If you've done anything with high school kids in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, it was his research uh, from his high school as a practitioner that combined with Avery Fagenbaum to really set some of the foundational pieces that we think about in our field today about training youth athletes and youth being anywhere from basic biomotor skills of elementary school kids to middle school to really those kind of prepubescent or even adolescent times uh, when it comes to training and whether or not it was safe, whether or not it damaged your growth plates or any of the other um, kind of folklore. It was his research that really kind of pioneered the way to say, yeah, no, actually training is great. Now it's different. They're not little adults. Um, but certainly training has a lot of positive benefits to that population. So we're going to talk about that today. In addition, I know he won't talk about it, but I want to make sure that, you know, I, I speak up cause he's, he's pretty humble, but also his, his work's been noted on the national level by receiving the award of having the uh, high school coach of the year, national high school coach of the year with the NSCA. So other people have noticed, uh, his work as well, um, besides just the people in his immediate community. So Coach McFarland, thank you so much for coming on. Coach Newman, thank you so much for having me. It's a wonderful opportunity to get together with you, with uh, the rest of the crowd, and uh, I guess in the fellowship of strength and conditioning here. Yeah, well, I, I just think your your story is incredible. You've done so much. But I think you kind of need to take us back to how you got started and specifically lay the foundation to where you are today. So if you can, could you just let everybody just kind of know some of your background and things that get you excited and why you got into what you did? Great. Yes, yeah, sure. I will. Uh, I've been at the high school where I'm at now since 1997. I graduated in 1991. I was a collegiate student athlete, played the sport of football. I had an awesome opportunity and experience when in college to the dual major in health and physical education and exercise science. It took me five years to get through that, but it was, again, it, it was a process. You know, health and physical education was, uh, was a major interest of mine. I wanted to be a health and physical education teacher. I had some great role models in high school that nudged me along the way, set me on path to be a, a collegiate student athlete. And, uh, to be able to dual major like that, get two two uh, degrees in five years and play the sport I loved and to dig into the, the training aspect of it was was amazing for me. And uh, yeah, I, I, I look at uh, that history and a couple of years of teaching in the school district of Philadelphia, being able to to coach at the high school level and, and be an assistant strength coach was a great opportunity for me too to see how valuable the role is of a health and physical educator uh, within the schools. And the position opened up in 1997 at Hillsborough High School because they built a 3,000 square foot training facility right next to the track and said, we need somebody qualified and driven enough to run this program. And wow, that was, my eyes were open. And uh, and uh, yeah, we were, we were ready to go with that. And it was carte blanche and we, we spent, uh, the first couple of years getting our feet wet and then uh, took the NSCA exam, was en route, became certified, been a certified strength conditioning specialist since 1999. And we've evolved our co-curricular program. Co-curricular for, for us teachers means that it's, 
it's threaded through not only the school day, but the after school programs and not just for the high school, but it's threaded throughout the district. So we, we were able to, uh, substantiate some of our goals and objectives by developing the program from grades five through eight outside of our school. And those kids would come uh, into our school a couple days a week. And knowing that we had, we had a connection with Dr. Avery Fagenbaum at that time, he was up in Massachusetts, but upon me calling him, find out he was en route to the college of New Jersey, just 40 minutes down the road. And uh, it, our level of interest, our, our, program development at that time was, you know, putting all the pieces together and to, to know that we had uh, an opportunity to do research with him along the way in this research-driven program development was an amazing opportunity those, those first five to 10 years. And now we're going on 20 years, that relationship. And, you know, along, along those, those uh, last five to 10 years, we, we've had other amazing opportunities, you know, within the NSCA, being able to present not only our data, but uh, some of the innovations that came along with seeing that, seeing those, uh, seeing those results, uh, meeting you. I mean, like, Coach, what a, what an amazing opportunity to see you at, at Yale, being able to reconnect with some of my collegiate football uh, uh, colleagues. Um, at that time, we didn't even know that. And uh, to be able to share and be able to spend time with you guys and, and uh, reinforce some of these things that we know that we've been over through the road of program development, exercise science, periodization, and then even tune things up some more. Because I, I really think that through that whole process of education and experience, we, we are all uh, basically you know, set up with what we know, that's our knowledge. And our experiences, however vast they may, may might be, and then uh, our perceptions. So when we get a chance to get together like we are today, or to collaborate over the years, it just uh, it, it evolves things for us all. It allows us to take a look at things in a different way, revisit things, um, maybe innovate and change things a little bit more. So I guess that's kind of the flair and flavor. Yeah, you mentioned innovation and and. People think sometimes that's just technology, but innovation uh, can come in many shapes and forms. But I think it's really the environment um, that allows things to grow. And so, as you mentioned, when you and I get together or if we get any of our uh, other peers together, when I, whether I've come to visit you or you came up to visit at Yale, um, you never walk away the same. So you have a new insight. You have a new way you approach something, bounce ideas off. And it's whenever I think of you, Coach, I always think of a collaborative environment where you can try to go outside the box. You can look at new things. And, and I think you mentioned you had a lot of growth as far as the research. But what were some of the innovations that you think about in the last 20 years as it relates to the students that really kind of blew your mind or maybe something that people aren't aware of? Yeah, the first couple of things I, I can think of is is our warm up right now and uh, our warm up how it evolved into some of our basic circuits that we do in any given workout. And the next is what important importance we place on the just basic competencies, whether it's you know introducing strength conditioning level one in physical education class, or we're seeing more advanced athletes in in our strength conditioning facility. Yeah. What do you think if you had to pick one thing that you said, you know, if you had told me 20 years ago, you know, that this would be true, I wouldn't believe it. 
What would you think? <laughs> I think that uh, nonlinear periodization is one of the points of view that allows us all to come together. Uh, and that the little tricks that uh, we might be able to have in our toolbox are pivotal and not only uh, establishing how important just the process of being there training is, but it allows to make it a, a fun, challenging experience as well. You bring up a good point. Somebody asked me and they said, what's the most important thing for training? And they're looking for reps or sets or they're looking for exercises. And I said, showing up. We, we know for a fact, we know for a fact that's A, the thing that gets screwed up the most. They don't show up or they're physically present, but unable to train because they went out, you know, whether it's in college, they went out drinking or if it's in high school, maybe they're stressed out or they're not prepared. Um, but trying to show up consistently and, and with a high level of consistency in your performance is actually way harder than people think. And whether it's injury prevention or sport performance, getting a program where not only people are showing up because, you know, they're compliant because their coach told them or someone told them, but they're committed because they love it. And I know you kind of touched on it a little bit. You know, you have this fifth grader through eighth grade. I'll never forget one of the first times when I visited you, this, I think it was a fifth grade girl. I think she came in and there was a senior and they, it was part of one of your programs where the seniors were helping out or it was a junior helping out um, the middle school student and the kids walk right in. They grab the PVC pipes, they're getting into their warmups and they, they look squared away. And you're like, yeah, this is the program we do. And, uh, you know, going through the Olympic lifting techniques and all this kind of stuff. And I watched, and I was like, wow, this is going to be a, make a way bigger impact than just reps and sets and one RMs here. This person's fired up. And then when we came back three years later, I think she was a sophomore or something like that. Now she was doing it. She was giving it back to, um, Oh no, she was a freshman or sophomore. Yeah, freshman, sophomore. And then she was uh, she was helping the next generation. And so it was so cool to see that sequence of passing it down. And again, I don't even know if you had to be there. You know, they were going to do it no matter what. And so building commitment in your program, um, instead of focusing on just compliance, like show up because we told you or something bad's going to happen. I think your program really is a great example of how it should be done. And I don't know if you could maybe talk a little bit about how to get it started. Cause I know there's a lot of coaches listening. They're like, yeah, this generation's different. I can't get buy-in. They're not that committed, blah, 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 all these things. How do you, how do you time in time out, keep your weight room packed? Well, it can go from uh, what we're dealing with right now. You know, we're, we're, we're in the month of January. We're looking at February. We're checking in all those athletes that might not be doing a winter sport that might be looking at doing a spring sport, but they finished their fall seasons. You know, let's, let's see where you're at right now. We just went, went through some holidays, your winter breaks. Let's get back to the process again. Let's come in. You, you know, the warm up. how do you feel today? How's that left and right side doing? Is the left side different than the right side? How does, how does your first three exercises prepare you for the next three exercises? Are those, are those challenges different? And all those are threaded through nine exercises. It's nine steps. As soon as you walk in the weight room, there's nine steps to do. We all have the same steps, but you're not going to feel the same day to day. You know, in those three workouts during the week or those two workouts during the week, whatever the programming is for, for that group that's training that day, that warm-up's important for them. What's important today on a Monday, you got your Wednesday and Friday workout. It's going to mean something for Wednesday and it's going to mean something for Friday. So knowing that that workout is a part of something else makes, makes those kids come back. 
how do you deal with the parents? I mean, I know I've dealt with it in a much smaller scale than you have. What do you say to parents where athletes, you know, especially young kids shouldn't be lifting. They should just be allowed to have fun and lifting weights. And, and I won't even get into the stuff of, you know, stunted growth and all that, but just in general, whether it's Olympic lifting, whether it's squatting, whether just call it any of your formal training, what would you say? And I know I'm preaching to the choir, to the people that listen to this, that, you know, we are very much into getting into training, but what do you say to that parent who it's their only kid? They don't know you. They don't know weights. They probably have a friend who got hurt in the weight room and they're just petrified. You know, why do you think kids should lift in the first place? We can cover a couple of, a couple of the points when it comes to safety and progression and all that. But I think one of the biggest highlights for me is what are the demands of the sport that they love to play? And if we take a look at the demands in the sport and take a look at how, what level they're at and where their fitness level is, is a basic fitness level or do they progress to a more preparedness fitness level? Maybe they're ready for some of the movements. They look pretty good doing it, but are they going to be where they need to be to play that sport competitively? That, that's the performance aspect of it. So we, we not only talk about, we, we want to be fast on the field, but can you endure the rigors of that sport? What, what is your level of, uh, what is your level of injury prevention for that sport? Because we, we're really not going to enjoy the enjoy that sport if we're struggling to step on the field. Yeah, I think parents often have a hard time understanding that from recreational sport, and then as you get into middle school or high school, there is this transition time where it still needs to be fun. But in some situations, whether it's club teams or competitive, you know, depending on the size of your school the physical demands of the sports become a real thing. Just like you wouldn't advance a student from, you know, algebra to calculus, you would go through a certain set of progressions physiologically, as you alluded to, you know, some people might be prepared, some aren't, but it's not fun when you're 20 pounds underweight, you're asked to collide into somebody else, or you have to run, you know, a certain amount of mileage in a practice, but you know, you can't touch your toes and, and just doing a mile, you know, makes you winded. I think you bring up a great point with that and training with the young kids isn't really about focusing on outcomes, maybe in the college level or professional levels. I want to hit certain numbers for the younger athletes. I want them to smile. I want them to have control. I want them to teach attention to detail. I want to teach them. You could have a terrible day, but your expectation is you're going to be the best teammate to motivate your training partner. And I think a lot of those things, especially the weight room, we can create adversity that maybe you can't in other parts of an athlete's life, but showing them how to push through, persevere, and be a teammate. I think those are pretty analogous for after sports and into life. And there's a reason why people like athletes. There's a people why there's a, there's a reason why people like individuals that are into training and committed. And I think it's a great stepping stone that really there's no, there's no athletic minimum. You can be the most unathletic person, but if you're structured in your training, you'll get a benefit. I mean, biology is biology and the physics are the physics. So if you do it and you create an environment as a coach, you can make a positive impact long after their athletic career is over. So true. So true. And, and to, to add to that point, a couple of, couple of those uh, scenarios you brought up, you know, let's injuries aside, are we having fun playing that sport? Because we can perform those skills and get better at performing those skills. You know, we mindfulness is one of the hugest benefits from, tr from resistance training and being in the process of strength and conditioning. So 
how hard do I have to work in order to do that? You know, we can explore those things. How much effort can I put forth? How did that feel when I did it that time? Or where do I need to go? You know, how fast can I run that? How fast did I run it? So, you know, that it's, it's one of those things as a coach is that we can help them be mindful in their approach and help them reach their goals. <laughs> how do they know what they're, they have to establish goals first. For us, our strength levels allow us the first, first line goal setting. You know, we, we're doing these movements well. Great. Let's, let's do it with some resistance. We're doing it well and we're doing it with some resistance. How strong can we be? You know, those are the steps that we, that we take, whether it be in the strength conditioning, strength conditioning center on the track that help us when we're on the field or court. Yeah, there's a, there's a look that I remember, you know, from being doing sport coaching, whether it was in volleyball or working with basketball and some of the other teams, um, but it, it translates into the weight room. And it's that look that when an individual looks at you and they are shocked at their capacity, and I'll never forget it, is that every time every athlete has that moment where I didn't think I could do that. How did you know I could do that? Now, I didn't tell them that we auto-regulated their thing with the Epley formula and we made sure that we knew that they were going to hit those numbers, but we're going to act just as shocked and like, oh my God, you could do, you could do even more. And, you know, when, once you see that first smile, now that goes into grades. Now that goes into how they carry themselves. And I think that's honestly, especially in the middle school population where let's just be honest, middle school sucks. It's awkward. You know, you're in the height, height of awkwardness. And so giving someone something where they're in control that as long as they push, and I think if you're listening to this and, and you know, it took me a while to get here when you're dealing with the younger population, you really don't want to focus on the most weight or a thousand pound this or whatever. I don't really care about the output, but I will ask an athlete, like you said, that they can try and fail and that's okay. Cause most athletes are not really keen on failing. It's a calculated, okay, if I gave 90% of my effort versus 80%, how far could I get versus no, I want you to give a maximal effort every time. And I don't care if you fail. I also don't care if you get it. I want you to come back and go harder the next day. And so it's a, it's a weird paradigm for, for a young person because it's all grades and what did you get in school? What are your grades? You know, this, that, but this is all individual and it's an effort-based thing that as a coach, you can say, yeah, you hit all your numbers, but you were at 60%. And I think that's probably the biggest lesson too, that you can pass upon to the middle school kids or the younger athletes. You know, coach, I, I think we're kind of lending to some assessments here and I, I'd like to throw a few out there, you know, 10 yard dash. So we did. Let's, let's look at a 1.9. Okay, so you're at 1.9. That's a good starting spot. And then when you take a look at those first three steps, you know, what do those first three steps look like? What are your posture in those? And when you start examining those and you start adding maybe some drill work to that, or you add some video assessment tools to it, and you're at 1.7. Oh, 1.7. All right, here we go. We're part of the process. So how are we going to tune that up even further? What are some of the drills we're going to look at the next couple of weeks? What's the mindset here? We got to 1.7 from 1.9. What? 1.47? That's amazing. Or we look at, all right, we're benching and squatting today. We just want to climb up. We're going to increase if it's an upper body movement, 15 pounds a set. We're going to do five reps a set. Let's see where we get to a point where you're challenged for five repetitions. That's a whole different scenario than working up to a one rep max. So, you know, we're, we're looking at those five rep sets these days, just throwing it out there. And then how about a simple line drill? You know, all the coaches want to say, we want lighter feet. We want quicker feet. Well, let's do 10 seconds over and back on that line. Let's go over and back is one. How many times can you do it in 10 seconds? 15. 
oh, all right, that's a pretty good start, 15, but where do we have to be? 20 to 25. So we take a look at how those uh, steps look. We listen to how those steps sound. We start doing a few drills, talking about how the touch and feel is on the ground. Before you know it, we're getting 18, we're getting 20. So those are some of the assessments I would love to share. We, we can talk about vertical leap, and there's some amazing things out there that we've seen in Dome of the Years. And I've seen you guys work your magic, but you get 34 inches. Great. And then the three reps, they're jumping 38 inches. Why? Because it's the downward speed and force, turning the upward speed and force and giving, giving them the tools that they, they need to be successful. Yeah, it's really interesting when you think about jumping. I mean, there's so – it's one – call it one activity – but it can be broken down. I mean, we've got some of the bre- the best and brightest minds, you know, working with us on trying to analyze this and looking at strategies, looking at output and really upper human physiology. But we forget that, you know, sometimes kids don't know how to coordinate their arms. They can't swing. They can't run. <laughs> and again, it's a lot better to figure this out in sixth and seventh grade in the form of a game or in the form of a line drill or something where, you know, there's incremental improvements make them feel good than you know, you get there because we can see on the plates, you know, you bury yourself, you know, you were the strongest kid in division five, you know, wherever, you know, and you were the best of what you had. But, you know, what if we unlock your potential a little bit further by getting you to jump rope, by getting you to do some of those base, uh, basic biomotor patterns that I think honestly, and especially too, and you, you've probably seen it more so than anybody, COVID's really kind of screwed the physical development because we're not, we're not, we weren't able to play for a year or two. And like, to me, it doesn't matter. My, my days are long gone. I'm pretty landlocked these days. Um, But to the high school kid who would go and play with their uh, friends for pickup or even just going out and, you know, engaging with their friends. um, There's just so many biomechanical things. I wonder if we'll need to reinforce it even more so with this next generation or even these next couple of years. Um, because those moments of time and those moments of adaptation, they are finite, you know, just like mm-hmm. learning a new language, you have a certain window where it's easier. Can you do it later? For some people, it's easier than others. But I think biomechanics and biomotor, we really owe it to these kids to try to make the weight room as fun as possible, just to get them in. Oh, yeah. And some of those movements you talked about that we're experiencing, some people say uh, deficiency, I, I maybe say deficit you know, upper body push, lower body push, upper body pull, hip hinge, bracing, carrier support, you know, all those things that we can't really tout as basic movements have smaller parts. You know, and it doesn't matter. It's math, science, what have you. They're talking about looking at competencies, smaller little skills to increase the mindfulness to get some of these it doesn't matter if it's knowledge or, you know, standardized testing goals and objectives for us, it's movements It's to take a look at those competencies. And those things I just mentioned, carry support, upper body push, lower body push, the, the, the competencies that we're looking at are postural integrity, stance or grip, tempo and pacing, breathing, where's your balance, you know, single leg balance, dual leg balance. And do you understand and appreciate ranges of motion in those movements? So those are the things that are going to make it important. Coach, you're going to have to break some of those down. I think you just absolutely cluster bombed us with a bunch of uh, nuggets right there. You're going to have to break that down. I'd love for you to kind of go through, bring it back just a minute and break down those things because my counter is, yeah, of course they have balance. They're not falling over. Well, how balancey can you be? You talk about posture. We think about people at work in their chair, but what does that mean to a middle school or high school student? They're fine. So could you just kind of break down not only 
what the item is, but then also as you think about the range and, and trainability of it, because again, I can't make you taller. You know, I can't make your shoes bigger. Um, I can't make your feet bigger, but certainly posture, I could make some change, but like realistically, what can we do from an intervention standpoint with each of those metrics you just talked about? Well, I'm going to give you a shortstop reference right now. So if we take a look at a shortstop out in the field, getting ready, the pitch is coming. You know, what position are they at? That's the athletic position. They're on two feet. So they're going to have to get into that athletic position. That athletic position right there is probably one of the most basic positions that we have to be able to run from, jump from, react to a ball from. If we can do that on two feet, well, can we do that on one foot? Because we know we're going to have to redirect our movement at some point as an athlete. When we do that, we're going to be on one foot. So can we hold our balance? Can we get into the athletic position on one foot? And if we can do that, if we can get into the athletic position on one foot, can we jump from that one foot? And can we land that one foot? So I'm just kind of going through a progression of balance skills from the athletic position for you right there. And what position is their spine? Is their back flat? Is that hip hinged back behind the heel? Are the shoulders neutral so that they can be able to provide more force in that first, second, and third step as they redirect? So that's what we're talking about, balance. Are you able to hold your, your postural integrity through movements and movement patterns? Yeah, I think a lot of times people forget that posture is relative to the velocity at which it occurred. So I would always laugh at people would do slow motion stuff. That's fine if you're rehabbing or teaching something new. But how many times have you seen individuals with great squat mechanics, you know, at 60% of max, at 70% of max? Okay, now we get into 80 or 85 some of the posture starts to fall apart. The weak link is the back or the weak link is the, the trunk. Um, you forget 90%. So they have the neural capacity from a force contraction at the muscle level, but they don't have the coordination. And if anyone doesn't believe me, there's a reason why people can leg press a lot more than what they can squat. Because again, we're stacking multiple joints that are mobile, asking them to be stable, but doing it in a coordinated effort. I mean, Dr. Kramer said time and time again, it's 244 muscles that make up the back squat mechanic. That's 244 mm. muscles that can do whatever the hell they want and might get tired. And just a question of what is your failure point? What is your posture under force load? And then also at speed, you mentioned a 1.9 is a lot different mechanics than 1.7. It's a lot different when you're 175 versus 3.15. So could you talk about that? How do you scale that? accordingly to each of the kids, especially knowing they could wake up tomorrow and be a quarter inch taller. And now all the biomechanics are out the window. For us, it's being able to draw the lines and the variations for different movements or in some of the preparation movements or that exercise that we're doing that day. You know, some of, some of our preparedness level athletes are, you know, midway point in the program and We'll have them squatting that day, but we'll do a speed squat warm up. So after they've done all their preparations, their warm up, everything else, they they know that 15% of what their one rep max is that day, we're gonna try to get 10 reps in 10 seconds for three sets. And knowing that we can give that little aspect of challenge with a, a lower weight and really focus in on where that change of direction, what that posture is and that change of direction is sometimes a challenge that they need. And it states a level of importance on those competencies, I guess, that posture, those points in the range of motion, where's the bottom of the range of motion? What does the top look like? Where's your, your balance as far as the, the bar and association with your feet? And then the other lifts, 
So if we're squatting in our program, we're probably deadlifting in our program. And if we're deadlifting and squatting in our program, we're probably doing clean pulls in our program. So all of those kind of thread through the importance of that postural integrity and some of those key points that we, we talked about before. Now, how do you handle athletes that might be in a growth spurt? So uniquely to say a six month period, whether it's at the knees or the back. And I think about sometimes you walk into a high school and they just, they look funny. They got huge hands, long arms, or a giant torso. Their legs haven't caught up. It's, it's really kind of a, a mix and match type uh, view when you go into the weight room of, of some of the athletes. Because again, everybody's growing overnight and they're in the height of adolescence. How do you handle that though from a from a safety standpoint? Because maybe maybe on Monday you were six feet tall and then next week you're six two, um, and maybe you shouldn't. Because we talk about that all the time. Because you can, does it mean you should? How do you kind of govern that as a coach as you're trying to push forward? Well, as soon as they walk in the room, does if it's the first day or if it's the first year, or it's the second year. There's there's a lot of value in that nine exercise common warm up that we do. We're, we're developing relationships all the time with our kids. And I think being able to share in that warm-up experience with them allows us to target some of those things. Our warm-up has mobility, stability exercises in there that we can go over and we can in fellowship be with them through that experience. Because we've got, we've got taller athletes with those long legs and they're doing sideline leg raises and they're working on glute med stuff at the beginning. We know we're good, they're gonna have some difficulty there. And the variations that we provide them in their workouts allow us to target, you know, different challenges during the week and help them through that. So if we're, if the rest of the group is deadlifting and we have a person that's struggling with deadlifting because of a growth spurt, we'll, we'll take it off the rack rather than lift it from the floor. So all those tools are valuable to us to address the needs of each one of those in whatever space of development they're in. Well, how do you not fall into the trap though? of, uh, oh, you know, this doesn't feel good, or I don't really like that. Um, I know sport coaches will talk about needing to push through, doing things that are uncomfortable. How do you develop that mental toughness, but also not make it like you're, you're running a spa here where you can pick and choose what you'd like to do and not do? How, how, do, you, how do you handle that? We could start to equate some of those challenges in the room with the challenges in their sport. For a baseball athlete that might hear that we shouldn't be pressing over our head, but where does that throwing motion occur over the head? Where's the danger points in a in moving a weight from maybe shoulder height to over the head? And let's address those by the technique that we use. So there's there's it's part of the process to educate them on what those challenges are, how to overcome those challenges, and what are, what are the dangers within those challenges. Every time I've come to the weight room with you, I just sit and watch. And you do your thing where you just go off and you start coaching and you, you're just a natural at it. Um, but you always seem to, uh, amaze me with some nuggets. And these are nuggets we would talk about in our internship and with younger coaches that there's just certain things you're not going to read about in books. You're not going to learn at a workshop, but you're just going to experience it through hours and hours on the floor. If you had to pick, I don't know, give me your top three nuggets from a coaching cue standpoint or a realization as a coach. And I'll just give you my, for instance, is that I learned very early on athletes, the good athletes, you just demo it and they'll do it. So don't over communicate, don't over talk. What are some of the things that you've seen that if you're a young coach and you're, you're listening, you wish you could impart on them, what would it be? Everybody that walks through the door can yield 
a national or world-class effort. And it's just putting all those pieces together and it's striving every day to put those pieces together. So if I take a look at the most recent experiences, we've, we've had some uh, pretty, pretty prevalent users of our program coming in, you know, two, three days a week, just grinding through the preseason, establishing what their strength levels are in their five RM. And then postseason, we say, all right, let's set course on uh, after these few weeks of getting, getting our muscles moving again with establishing where, where, our, where our strength levels are, you should be within 20 to 30 pounds of where you were preseason. And they're looking, what? I know what first was set number one, two, three, four is. That, that, that's going to be a lot of work, but what have you done over the past three weeks? You, you have that. This is where you should be right now. So that's one of those nuggets for me. We, we've got that certain level if we've been participating in some cross training during our seasons where we need to be to set course on the next year. It's about setting those goals. But going back to the first part that everyone is capable of a national or world-class performance is the process yields uh, progress process always yields progress. If we're there, if we're making it to the room, which is 75% of the effort. If we have a calculated, you know, system that we're going to get somewhere. That's awesome. That is great. What, what are some other, what are some other ones? That's just such a great example of, uh, I love the way you put that, the world-class effort, because that's uh, something that we as coaches can make sure, you know, we don't know who necessarily is going to show up. We don't know what weight's going to be moved, but we can certainly create a culture where world-class effort um, is the minimum standard. What what are some other stuff, Coach? A lot of people are so results driven, and I said uh, basically it's it's three and three. You know, if you're talking about repetitions in the pull-ups, or if you're talking inches in the broad jump, or if you're talking inches in the vertical leap, let's shoot for three inches in three weeks. What we don't make it in three weeks? All right, we got three more weeks. So you know, three and three. I love that. That's great. That's great. Now, do you use that both for the weight training component or is it particularly the conditioning or is that kind of all aspects for three and three? Well, that's, that's I guess, for some of the uh, sports skill components, because people are so research driven, I don't want to jump higher, you know, or I, I want to run that 10 yard dash faster. Well, let's shoot for those three tenths, man, you know, three tenths and form a technique. And then let's reevaluate when we get there. But let's strive for something. So that's a, that's a quick one. When it comes to the weights, three extra repetitions. So if we're doing that last set of five and we know that our, our last set weight is 200 pounds, if we can get three more reps in five, that's eight. That's 15 more pounds you get to work with in all your sets and reps the next time you commit. You know, so if all those sets lead up to that. And some of those kids, you mentioned them before that are going through those growth spurts. They, they have five sets to do that day. If we're having difficulty after set number three, we shut it down. We do some interventions. We stretch. We give high fives and tomorrow's another day. Yeah. No, and I've seen that in action where – you do such a good job of making sure that it's never, never a bad day. I mean, you, you've preached that to me since the first time we met about, you know, it's always sunny in the weight room, you know, it's maximum effort. There's no other place we'd rather be than grinding here with you or grinding here with me and being a good teammate. And you certainly, um, you know, have a wide range of athletes in that room from division one scholarship athletes to that just kid who wants to get fit, like general life wellness and activities of daily living. What, what's 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 one though for the racks though because again i can think about the one that you did with me on the sumo deadlift and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna share that just quite yet today i think that the deadlift needs its own podcast but just what's another just kind of coaching cue for a young coach that can actually really change the kinematics um when they're at the rack 
you know, I, the three or four things come come through my head when you say Coach, something like we that. Got time. Just, Coach, we got we time. Think, we think of so many of those so many of those things, and you know, thinking about those competencies, it's how strong you feel either under or over that bar that are going to tell us where your base is for that activity. So if you take that bar off the rack and you just, it just feels heavy, like it's weighing you down, you're not up into that bar. You don't have all of your strength saying, I'm going to carry you. And then I'm going to squat you. We're, we're probably not where we need to be. Or if you're over top of the bar and it's a clean pull or if it's a deadlift, are we lined up perfectly? If it's a clean pull, those shoulders are over the bar and those knees are back over the ankles and our posture is real tight. All we feel is knee extension in our body, squeezing that posture to the point where that one movement is moving at that first gear speed until it gets to the knee. That's probably the most grueling movement in the weight room. If you ask me that first pull in the cleans, most people say, oh, it's a deadlift. And you know what? If you're tight and that bar is coming up off the bar, uh, off the floor so slow in the deadlift, that that's grueling too. But knowing that you're over top of that bar in the clean pull and you have to make something that's moving very slow, move very, very fast, <laughs> that's difficult. So that, that positioning, that feeling of being posturally set and ready to go, I think is, is the most important thing we can coach up. Well, you, you alluded to, it's the first time we've talked about Olympic weightlifting, and I wanted to kind of get into that because obviously you're very plugged into that community, um, but you talk about that dance with the bar. I, I'll never forget uh, a mentor of mine, uh, a good friend, Tom Blaney, talking about the, uh, the, the, that lift, that power clean, or even, I'll go any of the Olympics. You start over the bar and you finish under the bar. Under the bar. And that moment, and I don't remember if it was him or if it was Dean Jerry Willis talking about the romance that there is with that lift. I was like, romance? That's kind of a weird way to describe it. And, and they were like, yeah, you know, you pull that thing. And a lot of people can pull. A lot of people can front squat. But there's that magical transition that happens in a blink of an eye where you go from up top to under and you throw yourself down. To quote Joe Mills, you jump down. You jump down under the bar. And you got to have a special relationship with that bar because you're about to have all of that weight slam back into you. And that can be really scary because, you know, you know, you can miss the catch, you can dump it, you can do whatever. Um, and so that whole kind of relationship that you have with that lift, I do think that that carries over to the field um, in the sense of I have to go into the B gap. I have to be in that assignment. I'm not quite sure. You know, is my teammate going to be there? Is that barbell going to be there? And so I do think that, I, you know, I'd agree with you that when you start talking about those Olympic lifts, forget the weight that's moved. It could be 10 pounds or it could be, you know, 400 pounds. The first time that you pull that thing, and like you said, it's, it is it is at a dead stop and it needs to fly. And you're going to have to jump and hurl your body under the bar, not normal. Uh, I think there's a lot of mental development um, that happens with that too, as far as confidence and believe in yourself because you can't do it half speed. There's no half speed Olympic lifting. No, no. And that's where all the time spent preparing for that, all the time spent for learning how to drop that bar safely come into play. And it just yields a higher appreciation for that, you know, and any of these movements and, and how it assists us with sport preparedness and all that. It's just, I think that that is one of the major objectives is to develop an appreciation for it. And that's one excellent example, because I remember tears of shockness. I remember tears of joy, but there's still tears. So there, there's a lot of emotion there. There's appreciation. It's all rolled in one. Now, 
how do you, to counter that, let's play devil's advocate. A lot of people talk about, we're not building Olympic lifters and Olympic lifting is dangerous, you know, as far as of the lifts because of the speed and because of the technique involved. I don't have time to teach um, the technique to do it safely. So I'll just do something else. What, what's your kind of stance on that? I know, like I said, that, you know, you're pretty plugged into the Olympic lifting community, but what's your kind of response to coaches who may say that? Because I'm sure it's a lot nicer than mine. <laughs> I still have some of those same concerns, depending on the training age of, of, of my, my athletes or my student athletes, physical education class. You know, maybe they don't have that appreciation level. We're just going to pull. You know, maybe we're not going to power clean. Maybe we're going to use kettlebells or dumbbells in the movement, but it's still, we, we get to work on something that's assisting us in one, training some prerequisites and power, or uh, two, developing reactive strength. So reactive strength for me, I think, is one of those takeaways from, from doing the, the clean, uh, from doing the, the clean pull or the snatch pull or whatever type of pull that you're going to be doing is that uh, it, it, there's variations that are allowing us to, to meet whoever's over top of that bar and be able to develop an appreciation for it to either take the next step or not to take the next step. Yeah. My, my thing is that if you tell me that, you're telling me that you're you're not qualified enough to teach it. So you should go get some continuing education. USAW has done an incredible job of giving that, you know, foundational coaching um, knowledge and to be able to safely do it. So again, more people die in the bench press than any other lift. Don't tell me something's dangerous. That just means you don't, and it's good if you don't feel confident with it or you don't feel qualified or competent enough, but go get a mentor. But like, you know, you should be able to teach that. And then the other thing is, and I'm sure someone listening could go get some stats on this. I've never seen anybody use Olympic lifting or its variants. So like you mentioned, the pulls or the catches or whatever, where even just minimal, minimal progress hasn't resulted in a better on-field performance. So I'm not asking someone to snatch double their body weight. I'm not asking oh, someone no. to clean. We're talking massive, massive on-field, both performance and injury prevention. If you can receive a clean at half your body weight massive upside, you know, and if you can get to body weight, that's awesome. That's great. And, you know, if you can continue and you've got the, like you said, depending on the trainee and the sport, one and a quarter, one and a half, like none of those are world record numbers, but over the course of four years in college, or if you're in high school, you know, to be able to safely, as you mentioned, know how to dump the bar, know that if you don't get a good catch, that is not the lift to try to fight and muscle your way through, just bail out. But if you don't set that culture early on, then you get that, you know, trying to, you know, force your way through. And then, you know, again, those injuries happen because we broke from technique because Olympic lifting is pretty straightforward with what you need to do and how to do it. Oh, it certainly is. And after being through all three levels of the course and being a national level coach, I think some of the most valuable experiences for me in the sport was actually being in the warm-up area competitions actually seeing how those coaches coach all those variations in the warmups to see what how much value they place on some of these key points that again they're simple competencies for us those movements are acceleration and deceleration what sport does not have them you know these all of these movements and variations are acceleration and deceleration and we want that for our athletes so the more you can dig into it more you can get comfortable with it the more you can program and use them the better yeah and and we've said it time and time again, it might just be a kettlebell. It might be, you know, another form of triple extension. It might be just something, but you have to get the body to learn how to receive force, especially in any of your contact sports, how you receive the force 
determines the longevity you're going to have in that position. If you're bone on bone or if your ligaments are just getting crushed, yeah, you're you're not going to last nearly as long as maybe someone who's a little less strong but has really good efficiency on their receiving and taking loads. So it's a game of productivity and strategy all over. And, and as a coach, you owe it to your athletes to be able to teach them some of those basics because it really doesn't take a lot to make a massive improvement. I hear you. Amen. Yeah. What, uh, walk me through kind of a little bit about what you got going on now. We've talked about your history. You've given us some awesome nuggets to kind of think about what are some of the things that get you jazzed up today? What do you, what is your thing? Cause I know you're not sitting idle. COVID was not a time for you to sit back on your laurels coach. What are you working on now? No. And hurricane Ida didn't, uh, didn't assist that, uh, return from COVID that's for sure. And, uh, you know, technology is a wonderful thing. You know, we're, we're taking a look at the getting the whole community culture on board with taking a look at what balance is and what power is and what balance and power can assist us with. You know, we're, we're going to use some of the technology. There's there's computerized balance boards out there. These are things that are fun for us because we have a strength and conditioning club at the high school, and it's going to allow our students that are exploring those health science fields to have another exposure that they may not even get in college at this point. So, you know, we're, we want to make sure that they're heading in the right direction. But I think most of it is, is, in, is embracing it in the process, not only our warm up, those nine basic exercises, but our circuits. You know, we, we have exercise circuits that help us tune up those major movements before we do our major lifts, if they're doing the major lifts at that time. You know, we, we start with the light bars, the 15 pound. Uh, training bars, what have you, and just ex start exploring those traditional movements of bench, squat, deadlift, and all their variations, and then ending with uh, a circuit. And that circuit is st uh, stability and mobility orientated. So when you take a look at our structure from the most beginner person or the person that's trying to develop their most basic fitness, they have a warm-up, a circuit of three exercises, maybe a challenge exercise and then a last circuit of three exercises. And then the more advanced they get, you know, in between those two circuits, we're, we're putting some training movements in there and we're talking about resistance and we're talking about setting five RM weight. So that I'm excited for because it shows us that we can have the same structure in our program. We can take care of three different levels of preparedness for, for sport. And we can, we can flourish in that because we can measure the amount of improvement that's occurring, the amount of progress that's occurring by just doing a couple of extra reps at the end on those major movements. And then we can further refine and uh, set and establish future goals and objectives. Would you be willing to share some of those? I know if people are listening, you keep mentioning this nine station warm up and, and some of these other things. Is that something <laughs> you think you'd be able to, uh, to share with us as far as being oh, able to link? Yeah, definitely. Awesome. We'll make sure we put those links in the notes and we'll make sure you guys can get it. Um, coach, I could talk to you for hours and hours, but for those that, you know, maybe have some personal questions or they want to reach out to you, what's the best way for someone to get a hold of you? Cause I know you have always done such a great job for me and everyone else to pay it forward. What's your best contact information? Uh, they can reach me right at my school email. So that would be jmcfarland at htps.us. So j-m-c-f-a-r-l-a-n-d at H is in Harry, T is in Tom, P is in Paul, S is in Sam. Dot US for United States. 
Awesome. Coach, thank you so much. Again, we'll be in touch and looking forward to coming down and visiting you when you get your, your weight room uh, back up post-hurricane. Uh, but thank you again. As always, I, I can't talk to you and not walk away with some stuff to think about. And so today I'm going to be thinking about my three by three uh, and giving that world-class effort. So coach, again, thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, coach. Feelings are mutual.